Welcome to another episode of the Purple and Bold Podcast. From the Daily News Record, I'm Shane Metlin, talking JMU sports. And it's that time of year where we have basketball right around the corner, just days away for the JMU men and women. Also, huge football game. Later this week, Saturday, the Dukes in Atlanta to take on Georgia State. JMU 8-0, Georgia State 6-2. Huge Sunbelt East implications Lots to talk about with that one, but we'll start out with a little bit of a basketball preview, uh, talk JMU men and women. Obviously, both teams are picked first in the Sun Belt by the league's coaches. High expectations for Dukes on the hardwood this year just kind of matches everything that's going on campus, basically, for JMU athletics, where you're talking about the, uh, the volleyball team competing for a conference title right up there looking like a potential NCAA tournament squad. Football, obviously, 8-0, undefeated in the top 25. Uh, Both soccer teams with a chance, at least as of this recording, with a chance to win the Sun Belt Tournament Championship. Um, And you just, across the board, JMU Athletics looking about as good as it ever has, uh, the exception of a rebuilding year for field hockey with an extremely tough schedule. But for the most part, this fall has been extremely, extremely successful for JMU Athletics with some optimism this winter. Uh, starting out, you know, just a quick kind of look at the women's team. Um, they open up thir- or open up Monday, excuse me, against uh, Eastern Mennonite, a little crosstown action. Kind of the rare uh, D3, non-D1 tune-up for JMU. Um, but I think what, you know, they ended up doing – um, in the past, they've typically played an exhibition game um, f- with one of these kinds of opponents that often had some sort of local tie, um, whether it be a hometown school like Bridgeforth or EMU or uh, somebody with a local player on the roster. Um, they didn't do that this year. They went ahead and made this regular season game. I think getting uh, regular season games was a bit of a challenge to some degree. Um, and how some of the tournaments they play in are judged as whether or not they're MTEs and how many games they're allowed to play kind of changed on them after they were, after they were already in the process of signing some contracts. Um, so this will be a regular season contest for the Dukes. Um, as always, the D3 game counts as a exhibition for the D3 team. They don't have to officially take a loss if they lose to JMU. So will be an exhibition for the Royals from across town. But the JMU women, you know, they start out with um, this little tune-up game. Um, they've gone the route that a lot of men's teams, including JMU's men's team, have gone in the preseason in recent years with a couple of uh, close scrimmages. Um, I've heard that those went, you know, relatively well. Um, they've learned some things about themselves to uh, play those games. It's going to be a little bit different-looking team for the Dukes this year. Um, tons of size, um, a lot of power in the paint, an extremely good three-point shooter in Peyton McDaniel. But the go-to player from the last few years, Kiki Jefferson, is out the door. She transferred to Louisville after playing four seasons at JMU, winning a Sunbelt Player of the Year award last season. And Sean O'Regan, JMU's coach, has, you know, kind of said, like, you know, the big thing, last year and the year before and the year before that 
when they're down four or up four or whatever it happens to be in the last couple minutes of a game, he knew he could just give the ball to Kiki and she would either get a bucket or get to the free throw line. That was almost, you know, almost, you know, a fact that that would happen late in the game if she had the ball in her hands. Uh, probably, I would say, 90% of the time when JMU needed points late in the game, she was at least able to get to the free throw line. Um, they're not going to have that this year, so the offense is going to look a little different, particularly in crunch time. Probably maybe one of the most interesting aspects of the women's team that I've come across so far is, you know, Sean saying he's really looking at, you know, possibly a twin tower type lineup that JMU has a pair of six, four centers in um, Anna Goodman and Susha Kozlova. They're both players who have proven to be starting caliber centers at this level and not just, you know, Hey, we'll stick you in a starting lineup because you're tall. They've produced and a Goodman averaged almost eight points a game two years ago when she was, you know, the main big for a JMU team that struggled a little bit, but you know, she's a proven offensive player. She <clears throat> was a good rebounder that season averaged no more than six rebounds per game, but she's hurt to start last season. And Susha Kozlova is a transfer from middle Tennessee she was really the only option at the five to start the season last year, and she played extremely well. Ends up averaging 10 points a game, grabbing five rebounds a game last season. So you've got two six four centers who could, on any given night, give you a double-double. And you look around the Sun Belt, and nobody else really has a one center with that kind of size and also proven capability. There are some big players in the league. Um, you know, you look around, some teams have brought in some transfers, but, you know, for the most part, you're talking about, um, you know, somebody coming from Lamar after they averaged one point per game, but they are six, four. And, and that's what, you know, JMU players are for the most part going to be going against, um, this season when you're talking about in the post that tends to be, that could be a huge, huge advantage for the Dukes. Um, when you just look at the pure size and ability at the five position and O'Regan's talking about potentially playing them at the same time together. Um, you know, Kozlova possibly playing the four. She's a little bit more mobile. Um, but, you know, playing two players on the block, uh, almost kind of a throwback to these days where, you know, you, a lot of teams will play four out. JMU's even done that a little bit in the past year with four guards. Um, but, you know, they're going to work inside out a lot and probably be kicking it out to Peyton Jefferson on the perimeter. Peyton McDaniel, excuse me, not Jefferson. Uh, <laughs> be kicking it out to her <clears throat> on the perimeter, uh, which is a good way for her to catch and shoot. Uh, it'll be interesting to see just how this offense flows with changing up the style a little bit to based on the personnel. Um, even beyond the two we talked about at the center position, you know, Ashante Barnes is a transfer who started her career at ODU, went to junior college, is back in the, you know, she played in the CUSA before. Now she's back in the same league as ODU, both these teams in the Sun Belt. Um, so she's probably going to get a lot of minutes at the four as well. Um, it It's a pretty deep team, a big team. There's a lot of size. You know, Steph Odekirk is 
<clears throat> somebody who can kind of change it up. You bring her off the bench potentially <clears throat> at the power forward position, and now you got a stretch four who will go out there and shoot threes, one of the best three-point shooters on the team. So you can give, throw a lot of looks at teams if you're Sean O'Regan this year. And I, I'm really looking forward to seeing them play just to see how different they do look with um, this kind of change-up in personnel. Um, so it'll definitely be – should be a fun season for them. Like I said, favored to win – the Sun Belt Championship again. They would be repeat champs if they can pull that off. Um, huge season for women's basketball. On the men's side, <clears throat> also picked to win the Sun Belt. Uh, the first time in a while that the Dukes have been picked to win the conference they're in. Um, expectations just continue to be um, increased under Mark Byington as he's going for his fourth straight winning season as a Dukes head coach. Um, it's been since the early 90s that JMU has had four straight winning seasons. Uh, last year's 22 wins was the most since the early 80s. Um, he's certainly taken JMU to a different level after the program really struggled under Lewis Rowe for four years before Byington arrived. Um, <clears throat> recruiting has gone well, and he's really, I think, he, he's come up with a plan for how to maneuver the transfer portal area at a school like JMU. And, you know, you know you're going to potentially lose some guys, which they have, but they mostly hang on to the guys that they really wanted to keep. And they've gone heavy with the portal basically every year since Byington's got here, bringing in veteran guys and then just hoping to kind of develop some younger people behind them. Where you get to the point where, you know, early on in Byington's tenure, it's the guys like, you know, Vado Morris coming in and, you know, becoming a starter from day one, kind of the go-to guy. You dev- you have him, you know, somebody who's established. You have him for a few years. And in the meantime, you've got your Terrence Edwards that you're developing, who you recruited as a freshman to the point that he outscores Vado last year and comes in as a first-team preseason all-conference player here in his fourth year at JMU. Um, you really just think about, <clears throat> maneuvering the what's happening in college basketball right now. It's about as best as you can hope for at a mid-major like JMU where you have a lot of resources, but you still don't have like the tremendous recent success to try to sell on these teams. You're not talking about a team that's made a deep NCAA tournament run lately that helps you with recruiting. So what they're doing, I think it's been pretty, pretty, pretty solid strategy and pretty well executed in terms of trying to build this program up on the men's side. That said, I already mentioned, you know, a Terrence Edwards coming back as um, a potential Sunbelt player of the year candidate uh, himself. He was a six man of the year last year. He can do a little bit of everything for the Dukes um, battling a little bit of a nagging injury, not a nagging. He, he jammed his thumb uh, here in the early seasons, he's going to be fine, but right now it might be a little bit slowed. It was hard to say exactly how ready he'll be for the season opener Monday at number four, Michigan state, but the Dukes do have some other weapons, including guys they brought in, in the transfer portal. You look at TJ Bickerstaff who began his career at Drexel. So he's played against JMU in the past. Uh, Mark Byington has coached against him. He averaged 10 points a game his sophomore year at Drexel before transferring to Boston College. 
two seasons at Boston College where he wasn't as much of a scorer. He averaged about five points a game, but was a very good rebounder, um, you know, six to seven rebounds per game for Boston College. Great defender in the post, 6'9", with some good size. He He's potentially a big difference maker. I don't think Jamie's had a veteran, skilled post player, true post player, quite like him since Mark Byington has arrived. Um, so he adds definitely um, an element to this team. Jalen Carey, freshman, I think is also going to get significant minutes in, in the post. The kid is just absolutely huge. He's a monster. If you've been following JMU basketball for a while, the size will remind you of Dwight Wilson, who was at JMU for, I, I think, three years um, under Lewis Rowe, transferred after the coaching change. Um, and then had a really a, a lot of success at Ohio, but he got extremely more mobile when he transferred to Ohio. He got into the weight room. He he slimmed down. He was able to move a lot better uh, with the Bobcats than he did at JMU. He had success at JMU though. He was he was a good rebounder. He was a double double type of guy. A lot of nights. Um, Jalen Carey brings the same size, but already has that mobility as a freshman. He also can step out on the floor and shoot a little bit better than Dwight. Um, really pretty exciting to think about the possibilities of this kid uh, coming in and making a pretty big impact right away. Because, you know, <clears throat> you talk about a freshman coming in to college. A lot of times the thing you hear is he's got to get into the weight room. Uh, <laughs> you know, Jalen Carey is the weight room right now. The guy is just absolutely massive. His father played in the NFL. His brother Vernon Carey is uh, a professional basketball player who is a one of the number one, one of the top recruits in the country before he signed with Duke a few years ago. So very athletic family and the size certainly runs in the family. I think he's, he's definitely a guy to watch, um, you know, guard Mike green transfers in from Robert Morris. Another guy who is a newcomer, I think is going to be a, a particular difference maker, a very good shooter um, at the point guard position, but, won't always look for his own shot. He's going to be a distributor. He, he's extremely skilled, smooth guy. Uh, you bring back Noah Friedel, who if he can get back to his, you know, close to 40% three-point shooting um, capability that he showed at South Dakota State before slumping a little bit in the three-point department last year. I mean, he still was a 32% three-point shooter, which is not terrible, but um, he's a guy who that's a big part of his game is to be in the upper 30s, maybe 40% shooting from three. Uh, if he's capable of getting back to that, uh, potentially a big season for the Dukes if um, these guys that I'm talking about are all kind of hitting on their cylinders. Um, there's a lot. There, there, it's a deep team, again, but I think maybe the rotation won't be quite 10 deep like it has been in the past. But there's there's plenty of guys to talk about. Julian Wooden returns. will definitely be a key player. Um, guy like Raekwon Horton who uh, we'll see if he's 100% healthy to start the season two. Uh, you know, maybe just a little bit of a thing happening with him. Uh, I don't think it's a long-term situation, but um, I think if you're Mark Byington, you would certainly like to have at least one, if not both of those guys for a season opener because um, with him and Terrence Edwards, similar size and athleticism with those two guys. Um, and Horton's a guy who can really get after it defensively, and I think – um, disrupting things defensively to kind of set up and make the offense go. So we'll see a little bit more of this team. They're definitely off to a 
stiff challenge to start the season against Michigan State. But as as we all know, Michigan State in November isn't always the same Michigan State as in March. Um, so we'll see what happens. Clearly a very talented Spartans team, though, and it doesn't get a whole lot easier after that going to Kent State uh, just a few days later to face the MAC champions on the road. So we'll learn a lot about these Dukes pretty much as soon as the season starts, unlike last year where they were just absolutely crushing teams in the early going and not playing the the toughest schedule around. So it would be almost the exact opposite this time around. Which brings us to Saturday before Monday. We have football. We have the undefeated, 8-0, 5-0 in the Sun Belt, nationally ranked in the AP and coaches' polls. Jamie Dukes traveling to Atlanta to the place formerly known as Turner Field, uh, now Central Park Stadium, to play a somewhat surprising Georgia State team where the Panthers are 6-2, and two, they're 3-2 and two in the Sun Belt. One of those losses was to West-leading Troy, a team that Jamie was able to kind of squeak by at Troy early in the season. Um, the other loss to Georgia Southern, which Jamie handled, but Georgia Southern now leads the Sun Belt East if you take the, for the moment, Jamie, uh, ineligible Jamie Dukes out of the equation in the East standings, Georgia Southern would be in line to go to the conference championship game right now. So this is a good Georgia State team. This could be one of the bigger challenges uh, of the season for JMU to play this team on the road. They have a dual threat quarterback in Darren Granger, who I really believe at times is the most dangerous quarterback in the Sun Belt because of his ability to do it with his legs and his arms. Uh, we saw it some last year. You know, JMU obviously, when they fell way behind against Georgia State at Bridgeport Stadium a year ago, JMU obviously had some turnovers and some big mistakes and some things, but you're also talking about Darren Granger making some plays. The Dukes obviously mounted a comeback in that one, looked very good in the second half. It was kind of like they flipped a switch and said, hey, we're not supposed to lose to this team. Uh, comes back and does that in the um, second half. And and gets to win against uh, Georgia State, led by the same quarterback who has been playing at, at pretty close to an all-conference level this year, especially at times. Um, handling him, I think, is going to be a, a, a unique kind of challenge for JMU. They mostly dealt with quarterbacks who would probably prefer to stay in the quarter in the in the pocket for the most part, other than Cam Fancher at Marshall, who I think, you know, might prefer to kind of roll out and use his legs a little bit more, but was just so beat up in that game that that wasn't even hardly an option for him and got more and more beat up as Jamie would just continue to hit him. Getting those hits on Granger is going to be a tougher challenge, but it's also going to be a key for Jamie in this one um, to not only let him get to the outside, but also, you know, hit him when he does try – to run you, you you want him not feeling like he wants to run in this one and Jamie's done a good job with that with various quarterbacks this season I don't think a lot of quarterbacks would say that they've had the most fun they've had all season playing against JMU where guys like uh James Carpenter 
Jeremy Cromaw, Mikhail Kamara, and of course Jalen Green are are laying hits on these guys, you know, throughout the game. You know, the stack numbers speak for themselves, the tackle for a loss numbers speak for themselves. But Jamie's hitting their quarterbacks even on a lot of plays where they're not registering tackles. You know, they get the ball out as they're throwing they're getting hit as they throw. Um it's been one of the big things for this defense that the defensive line has been able to kind of make life miserable on quarterbacks. You know, what we saw from ODU last week was a quarterback who wanted to get rid of it quickly. So he didn't take as many hits and he didn't, that was, you know, ODU had given up the most sacks in the country coming into that game. JMU had recorded the most sacks going into that game. Um, They got a few on Grant Wilson of ODU, but for the most part, he got the ball out of there quickly. They ran those wide receiver screens. Um, the officiating was pretty loose as far as like what they allowed on the outside with the holding and stuff. Um, it's not necessarily a negative comment on the officiating. It's just the way that game was called. Uh, I think both sides. Uh, but that maybe benefited ODU a little bit um, just because of what they were trying to run with those quick passes to the outside and you know just trying to get past that first level on the corners and ODU did a pretty good job with that. And you throw in a mobile quarterback to the mix with a team that also will try to do some of those similar things, stacking receivers outside, throwing it the ball quickly, coming back with a good, good running back in Marcus Carroll. In addition to Darren Granger, two guys who can run the ball very well, you know, cut back against the grain as you get guys going in one direction I think that ODU, or sorry, Georgia State, does present a particular challenge to JMU. But there's also the scheduling. This is one of those cases where the scheduling probably works out fairly well for the Dukes because they played ODU last week, and they got to work some of those things out on what happens with those tosses to the outside, uh, out to the sideline, the short short, not downfield passing game that ODU was able to find some success with um, that set up some more slant-type routes. And then the one big play um, where Dominic Dutton got behind the cornerback for the long pass after you know going sideline, sideline, sideline all, all day. Uh, they were able to get one touchdown that way. I think Jimmy's obviously made some adjustments. Their players have talked about how like, they've learned some different things about handling those assignments. Um, the... the Secondary has talked about the need to just stick with their receivers wherever they go. Um, you know, even if they stick with their receivers, I think they trust the front seven, the linebackers, and um, obviously the front four linemen to do a good enough job containing that run and containing um, Darren Granger on some scrambles that. I think they feel like they could probably handle things a little bit differently than they did last week against ODU. So we'll see. We'll see um, what happens with this offense from Georgia State. It's been an interesting, explosive, and entertaining offense throughout this season. Um, you know, with the exception of a game against Troy, where the Troy defense did quite well taking care of them. Um, if you can force a few turnovers against the Panthers too, I think that you know definitely bodes in JMU's favor. Um, and if an offense can kind of keep the ball out of Granger's hands, maybe doing a little bit more in the running game, which I think Kurt Signetti has hinted is a big part of what Jamie wants to do this week. 
um, at least a bigger part of what Jamie wants to do this week after they've, um, you know, threw the ball a lot last week, 40 times for Jordan McLeod. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how Jamie ends up handling, uh, like what I said, is generally a pretty entertaining offense for the Panthers. On the other side, JMU's offense will try to, you know, basically continue to do what they've done. Um, so what will we see from this JMU offense uh, this week? Last week against ODU, Jordan McLeod, 27 for 40, 340 yards, three touchdowns, um, only sacked once. He did throw one bad pass before halftime, led to a pick. Um, and, you know, you lose your left tackle, Tyshawn Wyatt, uh, as he's making a tackle on the um, interception return. So that that was unfortunate. But uh, another great game for McLeod overall as this um, turns into a exceptional season for another JMU quarterback, and this time after McLeod didn't even earn the starting job to start the season. Um, you look at the running game, though. Kurt Signetti's offered some hints of what to expect here. I think we're going to see an attempt to run the ball a little bit more, potentially. Um, you know, Coming off last week, Tyson Lawton, 13 carries, 67 yards, um, and Kalon Black, 10 carries, 44 yards. You know, we're talking about both guys averaging over four yards a carry. In Lawton's case, 5.2 yards per carry. That's solid. That'll get it done. Um, but that's not a lot of carries for your, um, you know, 23 carries total for your running backs. They did not go with anybody else. Um, did ask Kurt a little bit about um, Latrell Palmer in weekly press conference, who has not been carrying the ball in recent weeks. Um, basically just said that, uh, Latrell's time will come again, that he's an important part of the team, has been an important part of the team for years. Right now, those other two guys, Lawton and Black, are the guys that they're going with. Those are the guys who are getting it done. Um, and as you said, you know, over four yards per carry between two of them um, is getting a job done. You just wonder if they're going to see a little bit more from them in terms of, you know, handing the ball off more uh, and, and possibly mixing Palmer back into the mix a little bit um, this season. When you see practice, just them going through the, you know, regular kinds of drills for running backs, there doesn't seem to be any kind of like real, you know, Palmer's still there in the mix running with um, the groups. Seems to carry the ball well, um, seems to be moving well. Don't really see much reason for um, him to be losing playing time other than just, uh, Signetti feeling like those two guys are the ones to go with right now. Uh, but he did say he thinks that there will come a time where they call Latrell Palmer's number again. Uh, so we'll see if we see more than two running backs this time. You know, McLeod also carries the ball a bit in the running game. They may try to like get that going a little bit more too with him. Uh, but he just doesn't seem to be as prone to keeping it on those, some of those option looks as and Todd Santeo was um, last season. Uh, McLeod, though he has some quickness to him, is maybe just more of a guy who feels a little bit more at home uh, looking to pass the ball. So it'll be interesting to see where they go. What they have done in lieu of getting very many running backs involved 
lots of pass catchers have been in the mix, especially the past few weeks. They went to a bunch of targets a uh, week and a half ago at Marshall, um, you know, two weeks ago at this point, uh, for Marshall, where they looked at a lot of guys. Saturday, it was Reggie Brown and Elijah Surratt getting a ton of catches between them. Nine catches for 142 yards, a couple touchdowns for Reggie Brown. Surratt, eight catches, 139 yards, one touchdown. Maybe could have been two. It looked like he kind of fell across the goal line on one of his touchdowns. They ended up scoring on the next play with a keeper from a cloud. Uh, but, you know, close to having two guys putting up those kinds of numbers. Um, you know, if they give if they give Surratt that extra yard, you got two guys at 140 yards with two touchdowns each. That That's a... Ridiculously impressive. They throw the ball to Kalon Black out of the backfield a significant amount here lately. He had two catches for 20 yards uh, against ODU. Phoenix Sproles getting more and more involved again out of the slot position. Um, five catches last week. Had a big game at Marshall. And then they, they work on some other guys. Like, you know, Kai Wright got his first catch in quite a while um, from tight end position. You know, they work in some guys like Amarion Dawson, uh, Taji Hudson. will get targets here and there. Um, so McLeod has a lot of options to look at when he's throwing the ball. Um, he'll throw to both running backs uh, from time to time. So maybe that will be a way we see the guys get involved in not technically a running game, but throwing to them in the flats is as good as uh, getting a running game established in many ways. So definitely a lot to look for as JMU just faces a different kind of challenge on the road against Georgia State. Um, Definitely looking forward to getting down there, seeing uh, the Dukes play in person once again, Um, trying to keep this this train rolling. If you're JMU, um, 8-0 right now, trying to improve to 9-0. Um, if they do so, I think we'll continue to hear more and more cries nationally about why JMU isn't postseason eligible. We'll see if by next week we have uh, more to talk about on the um, legal front, whether um, any kind of lawsuit um, comes from the Attorney General's office in Virginia. Um, seems like that's certainly a possibility if the NCAA doesn't relent before um, that's filed. So we'll, we'll see what ends up happening on that side of things. We'll probably have plenty to talk about outside of football in the coming weeks because basketball is right around the corner as we discussed. But for the meantime, you've been listening to another episode of the Purple and Bold podcast. From the Daily News Record, I'm Shane Metlin. As always, with you each week, talking JMU sports. And thanks for clicking and tuning in.